Inspiring accountability in the workplace, driving employee engagement, getting people to step up and take more ownership of their role in your organization is often easier said than done. My next guest says it's because we're using outdated assumptions. He's Jonathan Raymond, and he's got a radically simple way to help you turn things around. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Jonathan Raymond helps leadership and management teams change the way they talk with their team so that everybody wins. He says we've had 50 years of business coaching and employee engagement numbers that have gotten worse, not better over time, because the world of work has evolved beyond the philosophical models that traditional tools are based on. Jonathan has a new approach that he's successfully used while CEO and chief brand officer of eMyth, yes, the successful business coaching company associated with the eMyth books by Michael Gerber. Jonathan has now brought his process outside the castle walls, launching his own business, Refound, to help organizations like yours put his methods into practice. He's also written a new book called Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. I can't wait to learn more about his methods for driving accountability in the workplace, so let's have him join us now. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Jonathan. Hey, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you. I'm so I'm really excited about this, and I'm excited about your book and and you know your view, your vision of helping companies get more employee engagement and accountability in the workplace. Because you know those two things are such hot topics, and yet I hear executives, managers, and entrepreneurs say all the time, you know, I just can't find good people. What do you say to them? Well, I mean, I think that there, there are lots of things that we, we could probably spend a couple of days talking about. But I think most managers, and you know, I put myself in this, in this bucket, most managers and executives, you know, we've all had those thoughts over the years. And you know, what if I just scrap the whole team and start over? And I think that uh, you know, what, we, what we're reluctant to do is actually to lean into a personal conversation uh, that can have a profound impact. Because, and the reason why we're reluctant to do it is because we think it's out of bounds. We, we, we see behavior, we see people showing up in ways that are problematic, and we even approach those conversations sometimes, but we don't know how to follow through on them. And then we're left with this kind of sinking feeling of, you know, maybe I don't have the right people or, or, or what have you. You know, that, that, that complaint comes in different flavors and forms. But, uh, you know, I think that that's the, the, the question to ask yourself is, are you actually engaging with your team or are you waiting for them to do this magical, mysterious thing called engaging with their work. You know, that's interesting because for high achievers that climb the corporate ladder or those brave souls that actually start their own businesses, they often feel that nobody cares as much as they do about the organization. So is it really worth it to have that conversation because this is just the hired help? Is it realistic to expect leaders like that to let go and really empower their employees and have conversations? Whether it's realistic or not, it's, it's mandatory. So the, you know, this is the world that we live in. And if you're choosing to grow a business, uh, and want to attract talented people, especially, you know, I, I'm not someone who generally thinks about, uh, generations. I think millennial is more a state of mind than a, than a, a place on the calendar. But if you're looking to build an organization that goes beyond yourself, 
this is the this is the price of entry to leadership and management in the modern world, in my opinion, which is to be able to let go of the emotional responsibility and to question that idea, that very idea that nobody cares as much as I do. And, and I think most leaders, uh, many of the leaders that I talk with, they're already there. They're already, they, they understand that that old model of authority doesn't work. They just don't know what the new model is that can take its place. So what are these outdated assumptions? I mean, why doesn't the old model work for a while? At least people thought it did. So what's different now? What's different now, there's a few things that are different now. One of the things that's different now is that the, the quest for meaning, and we could even say self-actualization through work, at, at work, is it's, a, it's a, a positive epidemic, let's say. People are moving around in a very insecure job market. People are moving around more than ever because they're looking for something from their work. Not everybody, but many, many people are looking for something from their work that goes beyond paychecks, promotions, and even positive-sounding cultural things. They're looking to become a better version of themselves, and they want their work to be the path for, the, for how to do that. And so that model, that to me is the new model. That's where we're going. And a lot of cultures now are embracing that. Some cultures are more reluctant to do that. Uh, but that's the, that's the model that we're in now. And that's, the, that, that's one of the two big trends is the, the quest for personal meaningfulness. People were talking about this in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but it was pretty much on the fringe, right? Now it's gone mainstream, this desire for personal meaningfulness. And then the second thing is, is related to that is a mandate from most people. Again, not everybody, but most people are looking for transparency. They're looking for vulnerability from their leaders. They're looking for people who don't say one thing and do another. And so that, that you, could, you might have gotten away with that, and you may still get away with it to some degree now, but that model of leadership where you don't walk your talk, and I mean 100% walk your talk, down to the way that you walk down the hall, the tone of your voice, uh, the energy that you show up when you walk into a meeting, that old way of doing it doesn't work anymore. Well, that's really fascinating. You put your finger on something that just rang a big bell with me about people being mobile. And I don't mean having their devices, but I'm, well, that's part of it. But the labor force, people changing jobs more frequently now than ever before. People don't stay in positions 10, 20, 30 years with one company and retire with a gold watch and a pension. I mean, that is a thing of the past. And if anybody does have that kind of longevity, people are like, well, why haven't you changed jobs? So, you know, given that, how can a company justify having those kinds of conversations like you're talking about? Well, here's where it gets interesting is I think larger companies are better at this conversation in one way in the sense that larger companies, they're already tracking this data. They already know how much it costs to recruit, to hire, to train, to go through these, reten- these very short retention cycles and not being able to cultivate next generations of leaders and have teams disintegrate and reform. And so larger companies are actually more attuned to the cost of not having this conversation. That's the good news. The bad news is that they're not very well suited to actually having it because of the entrenched bureaucracy and the way ideas have been institutionalized up to that point. So larger companies, better tracking of the data, mid-size and smaller companies, better motivation, better position to actually make these changes because by definition, there's fewer people involved, fewer, less bureaucracy generally, fewer, decision, fewer key decision makers. And so the, the conversation that people are having now 
I think it's, I mean, I think it's readily apparent. Everybody's suffering from burnout. Everybody's overwhelmed. Everybody's trying to manage a hundred times more content than they've ever had to manage before. And you have to be able to trust your team. If you can't trust your team and they don't trust you, you're sunk. So there's, there's, there's no other conversation to be having. But if you can't find people to innovate, to take risks, to embrace their mistakes, to show up on time, to come up with better ideas than you have, you're sunk. Well, that's really compelling. And I can hear from your voice how passionate and strongly you feel about that. Let's say the unconverted believe now that you've busted these assumptions and these myths what kind of conversations should they be having? How should they go about doing this, especially if they have come or have inadvertently created this culture that, like you said, is very bureaucratic, maybe a little fear-based? How can they suddenly do the open kimono? So there's a, there's, there are two things. Maybe I'll come up with three by the end of this conversation. But there, there's two things that leaders don't do. First is you have to acknowledge the historical context. So if you're in any kind of organization that's more than five minutes old, you've already been through one or more culture change, you know, management theory, leadership, practice, projects. You read a book, you went to a workshop, you hired a consultant, you hired a coach. You've gone, you may have gone through 10. If your organization's been around for a while, you may have gone through 100. So the, your team, even if, it, even if they've only been around for a little while, there's a cultural legacy of change ideas that don't get implemented. This is in every organization or change gets implemented only partially. And so there's a, there's a residual impact that that has on the team, on morale, on the organization, on customers. That's in the space of your organization, whether you like it or not. So the first thing is to recognize that that's true, because the only way that you can have a new conversation about change is by acknowledging that there's been a previous one. Otherwise, it's, oh, well, there, here comes another big idea from the CEO, and it's just going to have the same thing that's going to happen to all the other big ideas is that's going to be hot for two weeks here, and then they're going to forget about it, and they're going to move on to the next thing, and they're still going to treat us the same way they've been treating us. So that leads us to the second thing, which is that, and then again, this is what leaders and managers, go-getters, you know, we're all kind of superhuman in this way, where, you know, if you're leading and managing teams, we, we we're so good at moving forward and we're really terrible at slowing down and acknowledging where we are. And so what has to happen in those moments is in one-on-one -on -one conversations with the key people in your organization, you have to own your contribution to why things are the way they are and how they got that way. Until you do that, nothing will change. And that's a lot of what I talk about in the book. That's why the book is called Good Authority. It's not called Perfect Authority. It's not called Omniscient Authority. It's not called authority that has all the answers. It's just good authority. It says, hey, you know what? I've been in a leadership position here for three years, five years, 15 years, whatever it is. And I know that I have played a role in why we're stuck, in why we have too many policies and procedures that aren't followed, in why our customers have these complaints. It's not all on me, but I'm a part of this dynamic. You guys are also a part of this. There are also some other factors that are in the mix here. And what I'm interested in doing is opening up a conversation with you, not about what are we going to do to make it better. That's the mistake leaders make. Okay, what can we do? What action can we take to make it better? That's the wrong path at first. The right path is what did we do to get it to where it is right now? That's the vulnerable, transparent, authentic moment that is both the thing that your employees are desperately waiting for you to do 
and is the secret in the ingredient to figuring out the right next actions to take. Now, vulnerability, I mean, that is a big hot button. I mean, that's an Achilles heel for some people because they derive their power from their position of authority, whether they're using it in a good way or not good way. I'll, I'll just leave that off to the side. But, you know, I mean, I, I've heard people walk in, you know, do you know who I am? You know, it's all about their title. It's throwing their mm-hmm. weight around. It's getting what they want when they want. And when they say jump, you're supposed to say how high. And what you're suggesting is leveling the playing field, still respecting people's position in the organization, but being a little bit more one-on-one and being able to open up. And that's vulnerable on both sides. I mean, employees have to trust that this change is real. And and how do you overcome that hoop? Because like you said, in in a large organization, especially that's been through hundreds of these, where it's almost an inside joke as the flavor of the month, people are getting jaded. They don't quite believe that this is going to be the magic bullet. If anything, they've learned to wait it out, keep their head down, and it will pass. Yeah, exactly. And and I've been there, you've been there, and and probably most of your listeners have been there. And I think that the, you know, for me, the solution comes back to what what we were talking about a little bit before, which is about transparency and vulnerability. And so... If a leader, if, you, if you're thinking about embarking on a new change project and you're not willing to talk about how the previous change projects have failed and or been implemented only partially, don't start the new one because you're just going right into that headwind of people's reasonable skepticism and feeling jaded that you're not going to follow through. So the right conversation, there's two parts. So the right conversation to me is, hey, so here's, here's what I want to do. My fear is that it's going to end up like a lot of the change projects that we've had. And let's share a laugh about that. Let's have some fun because, yeah, just like you, I know that we've done the flavor of the month thing multiple times. So we, we all can agree that we still need to change things. So we have to try something. But how can we try the change process differently? Not just have new content, a new leadership book or you know, a new consultant come in. How can we relate with this change project differently than we've ever done before as a team? And one of the ways that you can do that, to me, is one of the most powerful ways is to schedule half an hour weekly meetings, one-on-one meetings. So each manager with their direct reports, you can do, there's things you can do in team meetings as well in a group, but to have a one-on-one conversation that's ongoing, half an hour a week, that's not about tasks and projects, but is about change. It's about personal growth. It's about the employee, whatever level they're at, whatever level this person is at, what is their perception of how the change project is moving along or not moving along? What concerns do they have? How is it impacting them personally? What are the things that they're seeing that are happening on the team that worry them about the sustainability of this new approach? And, you, and if you make space for that personal conversation, amazing things will happen. People will open up. People, if you create that context and that structure, and if you don't, if you try to implement it from on high or you try to will your way through it, right? As leaders, we're really good at trying to will our way through it. No, it's going to be different this time. It's like a New Year's resolution, right? No, I'm really going to lose that 20 pounds. And it never works, right? Because our resolve is really strong in that first day, but our resolve is not that strong a week later or three weeks later. And so building that structure in advance obviates that you don't, you don't have to worry so much about pushing your way through because you've created some milestones along the way and personal conversations where you've agreed in advance we're doing this together. Let's talk about the organization that's been around for a while and prior change initiatives haven't worked. So 
the manager, the supervisor, the, the, the business leader, regardless of how high they are within an organization, wants to sit down and have this one-on-one meeting. And um, the employee, whether it's a one-on-one or a department meeting, is, they're, they're just not really just jumping all over it. They ask questions and they hear crickets. Nobody's really willing to step forward because they're a little afraid that their opinion might not be well-received or that there could be some blowback later. How often should somebody keep at this before they're like, well, this just isn't going to work? It's a great question, which is how do you get how do you get out of the system that you're in, right? So if you're in a system where you bring up this topic and you ask questions and you get crickets, you're in a system you don't answer them. Or, or managers don't answer them, or they put their heads down. They've decided that survival uh, is the modus operandi. That's the way to get by there, is survival. So how do you change a system? Well, first, you name the existence of that system. And again, it comes back to not trying to will your way through. So one conversation might be, hey, so I don't want to have another one of those conversations where I ask a bunch of questions, and then you feel like I'm pulling teeth. Do you want to do that with me? No, I'd really love to have a different conversation with you, too. Okay, great. Sounds simple, but it's hugely sophisticated psychologically because it goes against all of our ingrained beliefs about authority and being the boss and having the answer and, and showing our, our, our not knowing where to go next. But it's, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of, you could call it naming the elephant, but there's a naming of the dynamic, right? And then the, here's, the, here's the second pivot, which is the even more vulnerable thing to do in case leaders were feeling like, oh, that's too vulnerable. I'm going to give you even more vulnerable thing to do because this is how it all changes is being able to articulate to the people that work to you, how their behavior is impacting you. So when I, if I'm talking with a manager who works in my organization and I feel like I'm pulling teeth when I ask them for questions to be able to say to them, Hey, you know, we've been talking about this for, for a couple of weeks now. And honestly, I, I got to, say I'm a little frustrated because I don't know what questions to ask. And I want to, I want to change things. I want this to, I want you to have a different experience here. You don't seem like you're having much fun or feeling really good about your work, but this is something that I take home with me and it's causing me stress and anxiety. And I don't want that anymore. So I need this to change. And it's those conversations that are, that's a very personal conversation for a leader to have. It's not, you're not revealing the contents of your personal life. You're talking with the people at work about how they, as human beings, are impacting you as a human being. And you want them to feel permission to do the same thing. And so this is this vulnerable move, right? This is, maybe it'll take us 50 years as a business culture, but this is the vulnerable pivot for leaders at all levels in the organization. I was talking with a manager the other day who, like a lot of leaders, is good at starting the conversation and saying, hey, you know, I'm worried about what's going on, what's going on with this major project. And the employee says, oh, don't worry, I've got it covered. It's all going to be good next month. And what did the manager do? They let, they let that conversation be good enough. It's not good enough. There's a response, there's an intervention. So I can't afford to wait a month for, for, to find out if this behavior is going to turn around. I need it to turn around this week. So let's, let's engage in a new conversation with what that might look like, okay? Well, what about those managers and business leaders that say, look, I'm just not into this, you know, I'm, I can't be their therapist. You know, why can't they just do their job, mm-hmm. get it done, and, you know, that's what we're here for. They're, they're here to do, do their job, and, and I don't, I don't want to micromanage them. I don't want to get, you know, that deep into the weeds. Mm-hmm. I need to trust them to do what they say they're going to do, and they need to deliver. Yep. 
And and I, what I would say is that your your job as a manager is to tell them when they're not doing that, not to micromanage them, not to you know what most managers who say what you just said the the voice that you just gave, those managers are notorious the micromanagers. Their con their door is always open. They're always there to answer questions. They're always there to you know oh check in on this and and watching everything sixteen times before it goes out the door. And so the reason why people don't own their work is because you're owning it for them. And, and when you look in the mirror and you realize, holy crap, I am spending so much psychological, emotional, mental, physical energy doing work for other people, and I have no room for the creative and strategic work that I should be doing. When you're willing to look in the mirror, you don't, you don't ask that question anymore. Well, that sounds, sounds like it, that is the quintessential start, um, the individual leader's ability to make themselves vulnerable and that that can be a really tough lift for a lot of people that aren't used to that. How do you help them? Yeah, I think, you know, it is a tough lift. And I think it's also what the reason why it, it's so hard is because we make it much scarier than it needs to be. The conversation, and this is, you know, what good authority is really, what's really coming forward is people, you know, email me and call me about the book is, and I didn't think that this would be the case, is they say, you know, you just, you made it sound easier. You made it, it didn't seem so tough to actually start that conversation or to turn up the heat a little bit. And if the, if the book does one thing for people, hopefully it does more than one thing, but the thing that, I, that I've seen it do for people is it gives them some words and phrases and some ways to enter into those conversations so it's not so scary. And, you know, the, seeing the behavior is not that hard. It's knowing what to do and, and how to intervene. And all, all else I would say is that, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the expert on this subject. I certainly know a little bit about it. But everybody's writing about, you know, automation and robotics and, you know, and, and computers eating most automated tasks. This is the task of management in the modern world that a computer cannot take from you. This is, the, what, this is what teams need from leaders that computers can't do. Automation can't do. Machine learning can't do the complexity of being able to evaluate a dynamic and look at a team and see, okay, who's, who's, what's going on with who at these points and why are we not on the same page? That's an incredibly valuable skill in the modern world. That's what CEOs are looking for. That's what board of directors are looking for in their CEOs. Knowing how to do marketing and sales is not that hard. Knowing, I mean, build, you, you can, you, some people are great at designing products. Some people are okay at it. It's not, I'm, not just, I'm not trying to say that there isn't more talent or less talent, but there's a meta skill that transcends all of the different disciplines of the business, which is being able to read people, being able to show up with the right tone and the right context for a conversation, and to be the boss that people want to work for. And so that's the, it, it is a heavy lift. Isn't, and I, my response is, isn't that great? Because once you become good at it, well, that's not an easy thing to replace. Fair enough. Fair enough. So in a nutshell, good authority within a, in a business context, how would you define good authority? So I, I define it as, a, as the middle ground between, on the one hand, we have the old model, sort of top-down authority, command and control, do what I say, and you know, get it done, right? We've, most people have decided with their feet, if not with their minds and hearts, that that model doesn't work anymore. Now, of course, we have models, we have examples in our world of old authoritarian models that still hold this way. It's not that it's gone from the planet. It's still there, obviously. But 
a lot of progressive dynamic companies, they went all the way to the other extreme, trying to flatten the hierarchy and say, there's no bosses here. We're all in charge. And I think what we've seen in the last couple of years is the limitations to those models. So that's what I would call the no authority model. And the problem with that model is, of course, there's still authority. You've just made a, you've orchestrated a, a semi-pretend to mostly pretend uh, scenario that tries to go around the reality of authority. In the end, there's people who have more authority, more experience, uh, more control over the organization. In, in most organizations, there's some very experimental organizations where it may actually be true. But good authority is a middle ground, not command and control and not no authority. It's saying, hey, there are people here in leadership positions that we trust to move the organization forward. And those leaders, they're not omniscient, they're not perfect, they don't have all the answers, and it's not their job to have all the answers. It's their job to ask the right questions and to create the space for other people to come up with different answers than leadership might, to take risks. Because guess what? All you guys who work here, you're closer to the customer than we are. You know what the customers are feeling. You know what are, what's going on with our vendors. You have better data than we do. So we want to know what you think. And in order to do that, we're here to support those conversations and not to deliver edicts and mandates, but to be receptive, to listen, and to do our work as leaders and managers and getting out of the way so that we can listen better to our customers, to our vendors, to our partners, to all of you, and evolve. Wonderful. There's, uh, I think, a lot of powerful nuggets in that. And, you know, we mentioned your your book very briefly uh, in the intro, you know, it's called Good Authority, How to Become a Leader Your Team is Waiting For. And we're going to have a link to that book on the episode page at businessconfidentialradio.com to make it easy for listeners to find it and get it, not just for themselves, because, you know, I have been reading it, and it is, uh, I think, definitely something that belongs on every management bookshelf, like you said, to start the conversations, because this is something most people are not trained in. They're good in marketing, they're good in sales, they're good in product development, uh, whatever has helped them climb the ladder within their organization or start their businesses, which is to me even a greater leap of faith in terms of complexity, because you're doing everything at once in the beginning, and cultures kind of develop by default. And especially when you want to start delegating more tasks after, you know, the startup mode, when you're ramping and scaling, you need to be able to have a management team that carries on your vision. And that's more about joint problem solving than do what I say. So I applaud the book. But I'm curious, what prompted you to write that? I wrote the book out of just my own desperate situation of feeling like, you know, exactly as you said, you know, I'm, I'm, my background, uh, first, my background was in law and kind of business development. And then, you know, really my focus for a bunch of years was on marketing and sales. And I don't think I'm the world's most talented marketer, but I'm pretty good at it and I know my stuff. But, uh, but I was suffering. I was struggling. I was feeling like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with all of the things that were going on in my day. And I didn't know how to help the people on my team grow. And the things that I was saying, the tools that I was trying, you know, I'm a voracious reader, you know, trying all kinds of leadership methodologies and books and personal, trying to bring personal growth things to the office. And uh, the things that I was trying, I found that each thing had its own little kernel of wisdom, but there was something missing for me. And so that's why I wrote the book to, to capture something that I, that I started doing with my team that started working of really discovering my own good authority, which, of which I wasn't for many years as a leader, even though I thought I was doing okay, um, to, to come up with a, with a meta 
methodology, let's say, for whatever your discipline, whatever your skill, uh, and to try to make it not so scary to have these personal human conversations at work for your own benefit, for the benefit of your teams, and, and of course, the organization and the impact you want to have. I, I'm curious, as you were sort of stumbling forward, if if you will, and I, and I say that with the best of intention here, was there an aha moment that you had when you suddenly realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, I, I've tripped across something here, I'm on to something, and, you know, I need to develop this a little bit more. Did something happen? Um, there were there were a few things that happened, but you know one of the one of the things that happened for me is I started working with clients before I wrote the book. You know I had I was running a coaching company uh, and then had started this new one called Refound. And what I found was some of which what we've been talking about was that there was a way to talk about personal growth at work that was totally in bounds. And I never knew that that was possible. That there was a way to talk to people about how they're showing up based on their performance that would translate where they would say, you know what, I know that you're talking with me about time management, but my wife has been talking with me about pretty much the exact same thing for the last 15 years. And that there's a way to have those conversations that isn't about people's personal life, but where they make the connection. And once I discovered that, then I was all in. Once I found that this method wasn't breaking the boundaries of personal and professional, but it was actually inviting or even inciting people to go, wait a second, this feedback that I'm getting from my manager, this applies to life. This is about who I am. Then I knew that I was onto something and that's when it really took off. Well, that's very cool because we live in a more 24-7 world than ever before with all these electronic leashes that we we, we strangle ourselves with. <laughs> and so, you know, like it or mm. not, that's that's where we are. And so I know that we've only just scratched the very, very surface of what good authority is. And I certainly appreciate your time. This has really been a fascinating conversation. But before I go, I would like to ask you about who's influenced you in your life. Is there a person, place, or thing that's been giving you pause to think about life or business in a certain way that you could share with us before we go? Well, I would say, uh, you know, I, I had a few ideas going into this conversation, but I would say, and it, I, not to sound too cliche, but right now it's my unborn daughter, uh, who is uh, two months away from entering this world. My wife is seven and a bit months pregnant. And, you know, when I think about the contribution that I want to make, I, I know that I could make a solid consulting coaching business that, that does a little bit and it has a little bit of an impact. And that's, and that's wonderful. And that's good. But when I think about, you know, her growing up and getting her first job and, you know, maybe running a company someday and who knows, maybe she'll be president of the United States one day. No pressure on her to do that. But uh, if she ever listens to this podcast. But uh, to me, that's that's what drives me is wanting to create a world for her and for my family and for people I know from from all over the world who are miserable and are feeling like work should be so much more a lot. This is work. This is what we do with our days of our human life. And so um, she's inspiring me a lot these days. And uh, someday I'll get a chance to tell her. I, you know, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when you have that conversation, because I think that's going to be <laughs> absolutely terrific. And I thank you for all you do to help try and raise awareness on this topic, because you're right, there's so many people that almost drag their knuckles to work on a Monday morning. And then, you know, there's more spring in their step Friday afternoon. And that's really 
a very difficult and an unhealthy way to spend such a huge chunk of time and of your life when there's so much more that you can bring to the organization if only they'd let you and vice versa. So being able to redefine those boundaries, I think, is just fabulous. And I applaud good authority. As I said, we're going to have a link to it on businessconfidentialradio.com. And uh, I encourage people to get a copy for themselves and for a friend you care about who you want to succeed. (laughs) So it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show, Jonathan. Thanks for being on Business Confidential Now. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then, 